Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Charlie Porter, author of Bring No Clothes, Bloomsbury and the Philosophy of Fashion. In this book, Porter brings us face-to-face with six members of the Bloomsbury Group, a collective of artists and thinkers who are in the vanguard of a social and sartorial vision. As Porter carefully unpicks what they wore and how they wore it, we see how clothing can be a means of artistic, intellectual and sexual liberation, or conversely, a tool for patriarchal control. Charlie Porter is a journalist, fashion critic and a curator. He's written for The Financial Times, The Guardian, The New York Times, GQ, Luncheon, ID and Fantastic Man, among others. Porter has been described as one of the most influential fashion journalists of the time. I was lucky enough to meet Porter in London, just a train ride away from Bloomsbury, to discuss the group, their clothes, and his own broader philosophy of fashion. Bring No Clothes is one of my favourite books of the year, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Charlie, thank you for agreeing to speak with me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking. I'd like to start our conversation by asking you if you could, to describe what Bring No Clothes means. So the title Bring No Clothes comes from a letter that Virginia Woolf, the writer, sent to T.S. Eliot in 1920, September 1920. And it's a super short letter. She was inviting him down for the weekend. It sounds like he'd already agreed to go for the weekend. Like it's a letter that kind of saying, oh, hey, I hope you'll come on this date. And... In the letter, she tells him the best trains to take from London down to Lewis, which is in the southeast of England. And then she says that she'll send a trap, which is a horse and cart. And then there's just this line where she says, please bring no clothes. We live in the state of the greatest simplicity, I think it is, or the utmost simplicity. And what she's doing with those words, bring no clothes, is that she's saying to Elliot that, there won't be any formality to the weekend so that he can just come and stay. There's no dressing for dinner. There's no expectations of dressing for tea. Just come as you are, that's it. And the thing about those words is that Wolf and her sister, Vanessa Bell, the artist, they came from a childhood and young adulthood into their mid-twenties of rigid horrible control of their lives through clothing. They lived in their father's house until 1904 when they were in their mid-twenties. Their father was a widow and very kind of absent. He kind of was at the top of the house, just very bitter and paranoid. And their lives were controlled by their half-brother who was psychologically and sexually abusing them. And the clothing was a huge part of the control. So they had to dress for dinner in clothes they couldn't afford. They had to scrub up to meet his approval. So when they say bring no clothes, it's more than just, hey, you know, don't worry about dressing the way that we might say to each other. It actually stands for this kind of seismic societal shift in which women in particular were able to live with freedom and live without these restrictions And these restrictions also, it's not just the codification of society. It's also what you can do at that time. So basically, 
the assumption is, is that if you dress for dinner, then the women immediately acquiesce to a kind of silence or polite conversation or flattering men. And so if you remove the dressing for dinner, then what happens is that there can be an approach to gender parity and that they can all talk together. That's what bring no clothes means. I mean, that's a hugely long way of saying that, like, as soon as I saw the words, they jumped off the page to me because I also love the fact that they're an invitation to the reader today, that we bring no clothes to our assumptions of dressing, that what would happen if we got rid of all our assumptions of the way we wear clothes, why we wear clothes, to really analyse it and to maybe come to new conclusions about clothing and our relationship with clothing. Could you tell us a little bit about the Bloomsbury group and the people that you chose to focus on in this analysis? Yeah, so the Bloomsbury group were a collective of writers, artists, thinkers who began meeting at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's a huge, sprawling group. Their influence is still felt today. Their influence is still debated today. When I started looking at them, I realised how much that they were queer humans attempting to find ways of living, attempting to find ways of loving. And their creative output was as a result of this attempt to find new ways of living and loving. I was asked to do an exhibition about the Bloomsbury Group and clothing. Mm, for Charleston. It's a place called Charleston, yeah, which is down in the southeast of England. And it, it is the home of Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. They moved there in 1916 and they lived there off and on and then permanently for the rest of their lives. And they painted on every surface in that house. The house is really remote. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So they could live with freedom. They could live without restriction. And after their death, the house was preserved and you can go visit it now. and, And it's the most extraordinary place to be. They now do exhibitions and I was asked to do an exhibition about the Bloomsbury Group and fashion because many 21st century designers are inspired by the Bloomsbury Group and keep doing collections about Bloomsbury. So the exhibition is about the clothes that they wore and then um, 21st century fashion response to it. And as I started researching the exhibition, I was like, ah, there's a book in this too. There's more, there's something else here. And I, I say more and then I stop myself saying more, but then I do mean more like, the thing about doing an exhibition is there's only so much you can do. And also in a book, there's only so much you can do. And it's, it was incredible to have this chance to to have this kind of project called Bring No Clothes and then do a book and an exhibition at the same time. And all the research into the exhibition could find a home. Because when you do an exhibition, you need all that research and writing to evaporate so that you're not reading a 40,000 word thesis on the on the wall. You need it all to disappear so I could migrate it to the book and then actually evolve the thinking in the book and come up with new thinking in the book that actually then isn't in the exhibition but is hinted at in the exhibition. So that's how the two happen. That's basically to say that I'm not in any way a Bloomsbury super fan. They're not my world. And I loved that. I loved the chance to explore these people. I, I give the analogy in the beginning of like, studying them like on a space station and they're on petri dishes like taking them and analyzing their lives without the burden of being a super fan or without the burden of needing to 
maintain their legacy. Because I'm not a super fan, it then allowed me to be very specific in who I chose. Like, the people I chose to study were the ones that worked best in what I was looking at. And so I chose Virginia Woolf, Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant, E.M. Forster, John Maynard Keynes, and Lady Ottilie Morell, these six figures. And then other figures appear in it as well, but they're the key six. And the thing about those six is that they are core Bloomsbury in that they were around in the first six years, or they made their presence felt in the first six years of Bloomsbury. And there are other figures whose garments are fascinating, who appeared later, younger figures, and that's for a different book, that's for someone else. Like, for me, I was interested in, in the figures that were born in the late 19th century and were in their 20s in the first 10 years of the 20th century, so we're at this point of change between Victorian and modern. And that was the fascination for me, was like having the chance to look at the moment when Victorian switched to modern and to look at actually what happened rather than the way it's often seen in fashion history, which is like this kind of glide from Victorian to bloop, suddenly we're at Chanel and suddenly everything's free and, and possible. I always thought, oh, there's other stuff going on here. It's more than just a kind of like, oh, we're suddenly going to drop the cinch silhouette. Like, there's other things happening. That's why I was excited to study them. Definitely. And that, that glide that you mentioned. Yeah. I think this book does a really interesting thing in that it illuminates why and how these people did these things with their clothing, very much not idolising them, as you say. You right. know, like, we can... I think you're right. To study the Bloomsbury Group does not mean you want to be the Bloomsbury Group. Right, right. But it's very important and crucial to see how and why these people are doing these things. So Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, rebellion in a sense, but in a very personal, embodied way, right. is very fascinating. Throughout the book, it's not just words, but there's lots and lots of photographs. These right. photographs that, are, that seem, as you say, like family photos. Yeah. Most of them are very free and they're being themselves very candidly yeah and you can see how these people are making themselves or bring themselves into being in their idealized manner you can approach them from a different perspective in that way that's right. not just the literary or the artistic but the personal right in a more rich manner yeah and that was really crucial to me like when i started the research and started to make my first steps towards them I was very aware how the usual way in which they're seen to me was so boring. Mm. I had absolutely no interest in the usual witticisms, the usual put-downs, the gossip, that's the way that the story is normally spun. I just found it as dry as anything, but it's so uninteresting. And it seemed to me that those stories have been told and told and told. So there's this kind of struggle within it of these humans who are clearly fascinating, but then this rigid narrative that is set in place about them that didn't seem to actually correspond to how people actually felt about Virginia Woolf. Like people feel such incredible love for her, genuine love. But yet the way the narrative's told is in this very dry, pinched mouth, like, mean way. And I quickly realised that 
actually, that's because there was a hell of a lot of gossip around at the time, and they were all gossiping to each other. It's all in the letters, the gossip, gossip, gossip. But what I wanted to try and do was like, oh, let's try and turn the gossip down. So what happens with their stories if you just like turn the dial down on the gossip and let the people speak? And I realised that actually the gossip was often mostly due to one person, which is Lytton Strakey. Lytton Strakey wrote this book, Eminent Victorians. He was, he was a really well-respected, successful figure at the time of the Bloomsbury Group, probably one of the most famous ones of them first. And he was a total gossip in a very cavalier way. And it was often gossip about queer women as well, mm. who themselves didn't have the same voice because of society at the time, the lack of gender parity, the way that queer men had ways of existing within society, whereas queer women didn't. But what happens with clothing is if you study people through their clothing, something very interesting happens. Because it's not studying through their clothing in terms of get the look. It's not studying them in terms of like, oh, if you wear this, you can look like that too. It's more that clothing is a way in. And that if you approach someone through their clothing, you can get closer to them. You feel an intimacy with them. And you get to sit with them in a way. You, it's almost like you're there with them as they are going about their acts. So it allows you to tell a narrative which is as if it's happening at that time rather than the presumptions of, oh, we already know this is going to happen and Lytton Strakey said this vile thing about them and that, that colours the whole thing. So we've moved outside because there was building work in my flat and uh, it was too loud. So we're now sat on Arnold Circus, which is kind of bandstand and garden just near my house, but I'm a volunteer on the garden, so yeah, it's a nice place to come and sit, but that's why there's suddenly wind outside. The thing that happens when you sit with them in their clothes, it's there in the first few years of Bloomsbury, so basically they escape from their father's control and the, and the control of this half-brother who's dominating their lives when their father dies in 1904, and Vanessa Bell finds them a place to live in Bloomsbury. They'd previously been living in Kensington, which is like a super fancy area. They were living right by the Royal Abbott Hall, just south of High Park. And it sounds wonderful, but actually it's a horrible little cul-de-sac. I say horrible because obviously the houses are really fancy, but in terms of how psychologically it was an area, if you felt stuck, you would feel really stuck. It wasn't a street with life on it. It was a dead end street, literally. And Vanessa Bell moved them to Bloomsbury, which is this area of all this movement and stuff happening because it's just south of the train stations. So also areas that society wouldn't want to live in, upper class society. And there are no photos of this time when they moved there. And it was fascinating to me that there were no photos because there were so many photos before of their childhood and so many photos from about 1910 onwards. And Actually, what you can see from Virginia Woolf's writing is that the lack of interest in clothing is as important as an interest in clothing. So you said a minute ago before we moved about rebellion, and actually what they were doing was anti-fashion. Virginia Woolf writes later in her life about how important it was that it didn't matter at all what they were wearing 
because of this thing of it not mattering, it meant they could move towards gender parity. And so they, she wrote that they weren't having to wear seed pearls, they weren't having to, you know, they weren't having to dress up. So this thing about a Bloomsbury look, which which some people talk about, I think is actually a red herring. It's not about trying to f copy a Bloomsbury look. It's more that we can use their clothes to pinpoint their rebellion and pinpoint their radicalism, which then comes to light if you turn down the gossip, turn down the old ways of speaking about them, and use clothing as a way to actually sit with them as they make their radical change. And the thing with Wolf is that actually this 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 is all happening 1904, 1905 onwards. Her first novel isn't published till I think 1913, 1915. It, it, the, the Voyage Out is is then. So you know she starts writing it in the first ten years of the 20th century. But the effects of this radicalism take a long while to emerge, and, and Mrs. Dalloway is until 1925. But the absolute, the roots of the radicalism are in this chance to not have to dress and therefore not live by society. Some of the people that you focus on in the book, their clothes, they are that radical shift, that radical change, that way of being of anti-fashion, some of them. Whereas some of the people that you focus on, often it's a breakdown of women or men. Yeah. The men that you focus on, like Ian Forster or John, John Maynard Keynes, yeah. their way of dressing is, it is initially by appearance far more conservative right. and based around notions of masculine presentation, that the suit, I wear the suit, I become the suit. Right. But it's not that simple. You look at them with this eye of, very much an eye of looking at the clothes, breaking down how they present themselves, that's really illuminating and interesting, and I wouldn't have considered that. No, thank you. It was important to me when I started the project to look at the clothes of men, because usually when the word fashion is used, it usually implies women's wear with the garments of men, maybe considered but secondary and kind of thought of as like, oh, okay, that's what they wear. Let's get back to the pretty stuff. And this idea of a Bloomsbury look fits with that because it's very much gendered to the assumptions of like kind of a floaty but long sleeve floral print dress or something. You know, the, the Bloomsbury look is a women's look in the majority. But actually what was happening at the time of the Bloomsbury group forming was that the suit as we understand it today was really revealing itself so at the time it was called the lounge suit and what was happening was that the tailcoats, frockcoats, the coats, the breeches were actually morphing into what we now recognise as the suit. And we recognise now when we look at pictures of Ian Forster or Joe Menno Keynes, we see men wearing a suit in the way that we would see men wearing a suit today. And so therefore you could assume, oh, what's there to write about? They're just men in suits. But then the same thing happens today with men in suits, where we just think, oh, there's that person wearing a suit. There's nothing to talk about. Whereas actually what has happened is the suit has become the de facto uniform of power around the world. And as we've seen in many countries, anyone can put a suit on and get power, whether they should have that power or not, or whether they've actually got moral integrity or not. But this thing called the suit, is recognised as like, oh, okay, they're in power, they've got power, they've got command. So if we can interrogate the beginnings of the suit, then maybe we can begin to unpick our own relationship with the suit today. And it was 
fascinating to look at Forster and Keynes through the suit. Both of them were queer and both had very different lives. E.M. Forster is seen by many as an outlier to the Bloomsbury group. And I realized that he's seen as an outlier because he didn't have sex with anyone. Like, so he, he wasn't part of the gossip web. Mm-hmm. He wasn't part of the, the narrative that's built up. And so he's seen as outlier because there's nothing juicy to say about him. Whereas actually he was there from about 19, I think 1910 was when he first spoke at a Bloomsbury meeting, but he knew many of them from studying at Cambridge. Forster didn't find his way to sleeping with anyone or, or forming a physical relationship with anyone until 1917 into his late 30s, by which point he'd already written the majority of his novels. There was only a passage to India to come afterwards. So he lived this life trapped in his suit, and he wrote about the fact that the suit was almost like this layer over his body in which he had a passport around the world, and yet in which he was utterly unseen. So it was fascinating for me to look at the way that the suit was the trap and this language of patriarchy that kept him in that trap and stopped him from forming these bonds. And then John Maynard Keynes is a very different figure. He was sleeping with boys at school. He knew how to get what he wanted, but he was closeted, of course, because it was illegal to be gay then. Mm. But he went to Eton. He was part of an upper middle class, upper class society where gay men were given a free pass in a way as long as they kept quiet about what they were doing they could live their life kind of under the surface of society accepted by society Keynes was an economist and he wore his suit as he gained global influence Mm. and it was fascinating to watch him gain this global influence in his suit and be one of the first generations to actually go out into the world and do this and as I was doing it, it's then like, oh, and what's the empire? What's the British Empire like then? And actually, the British Empire was at its biggest size. Yeah, it was like a fifth or a quarter of the world's yeah, surface. This hu- this yeah, this huge amount of the world's surface. And then suddenly retreats and then almost like disappears. I mean, very quickly, rapidly mm. shrinks back. But at that point, it was a fifth of the world was taken by the British Empire. It's then seeing that the British men like Keynes could go into the world and spread the language of tailoring through empire as well, through this kind of global reach and power, it also then becomes a story of this suit and the story of white male patriarchal power. Keynes was deeply unpleasant and often his beliefs are are brushed under the surface. He believed in eugenics, a belief that birth can be controlled within societies, which is basically racism. It's, it's, It's selecting who gets to have children and Keynes had expressed interest in it in his younger years, in, I think, 1914, a speech he gave. And then in the 1930s, he was the vice chair of the British Eugenic Society. Keynes's economic theories are seen as so important that the eugenics is kind of forgotten about when people write about him. But actually, if you're going to write about Keynes, you have to write about his belief in eugenics as well. Mm -hmm. And for me, it then became all part of the same narrative of this white male patriarchal colonial power absolutely was intertwined with this belief in eugenics. So this suit is crucial to the story, this way of kind of sitting with people and seeing what stories emerge. 
And the stories that you touch on in the book, but it's also the people who are, to some extent, erased from the popular consciousness of these stories in these communities because you look at the people who are behind the scenes like the quote-unquote servants. Oh, right, yeah, 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 for um, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's all part of the same story. Yeah. There's a, there's a book by John Carey, Intelligentsia and the Masses. I think that's the title. Uh-huh. Looking at figures like Wolf and Keynes and their contempt as brutal and disgusting as Keynes's or as hidden as some of the others. Yeah. But it's very much there. And I think you do a really interesting thing in looking at the servants and their stories, building up their lives and their experience and their presentation through clothing. Perhaps if it was someone coming from a different perspective, not bringing that process of what do we see, what can we learn, it might be missing. And I really appreciated that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I I should say that when I was starting the project, I was encouraged to read a book by Alison Light called Mrs. Wolf and the Servants, which came out, I think, in 2007 or 2008. And it's an extraordinary book. There was a pointer of the way in. And then in my research, I was also then pointed towards the Grace Higgins papers, which are held at the British Library, which is here in London. And Grace Higgins was the housekeeper at, at Charleston from the 1920s until the death of Bell and Grant into the 60s and 70s. And she's called the Angel of Charleston within Charleston law, which therefore gives the sense that she was like emerging as this kind of Mary Poppins figure, like, ah, I arrive, I do your cleaning and cooking and I'm jolly and I leave you. You know, that sense of kind of covering up the reality of that work. And actually, in Grace Higgins's papers, there are early journals from when she first started working with Vanessa Bell, where she talks about what it would mean to commit murder, wanting to stick pins in the hand of one of the children. I think it implies that the child was also kind of doing it to her too. Like this really, really stark passage talking about the depression and the reality of her life. Higgins proved to be a really key figure in the book because one of the things about the book and then also the exhibition I've done as well is the absence of clothing. There aren't collections of Wolf's clothes, there aren't collections of Bell's clothes, they don't exist. One of the reasons they don't exist is in Grace Higgins' journal for when Vanessa Bell has just died, she writes in it this super stark sentence which is something like, took Mrs. Bell's mattress and some of her clothes and burnt them. Hmm. And she just says she burnt them. And then we also know as well that Belle had turned many of her used clothes or many used clothes from those within Charleston to make rag rugs out of them. So clothes weren't deified in the way that I'm sure if Virginia Woolf's wardrobe existed today, it would be deified in the way that Georgia O'Keeffe's is or Frida Kahlo's is, that there are these figures that are put on this pedestal and, Mm. and garments are used to make you feel like, oh my God, they touched them. That energy, which I'm not interested in at all, I don't find it interesting. Grace Higgins was a super important witness. She emerges often in the book and then I do a chapter on her own garments and how great she looks and how great she knows she looks. Like there's, there's a picture of her from her own photo album where she says about her with a pose, like she stood there. She, she, knows, she knows she looks good mm. and the dresses she's wearing have a freedom to them and they look very similar to summer dresses that are very popular nowadays. It's kind of big loose printed cotton dresses the idea of utilitarianism that we think of utilitarianism as maybe about 
a chino or a, a chore jacket, whereas actually these dresses are also utilitarian because they were worn by domestic workers. That side of the story is, is super important. This is my second book, and I have come to realize that the amount of time it takes to write a book, th these happen relatively quickly. This one from beginning to end was two years. The last one in terms of the process of writing called What Artists Wear, again, was two years. So that's relatively quickly in terms of publishing industry, but that's two years of my life. I've begun to realize that writing a book hopefully involves change, necessarily, because life changes. I don't want it in two years, I don't want to stay the same. I want to have evolved in some way. And that actually, by factoring that into a book, it then encourages me to really think about things whilst I'm doing it. It's not just a thing I'm doing over there with ideas I've already had and I'm just churning them out and like, there's the book, there you go, off it goes. If I embrace change, then I can feel that the book is as full as it can be. I think that's how I approach writing books. But the thing is, is that you have no idea what that change is going to be. And as I was writing the book last summer, my mum suddenly got sick, very seriously sick, and she died a month later. And so the change involved in this book was grief. And the realization actually grief is another word for change. Horrible change, but it's another word for change. So each of the protagonists in the book have got a different aspect of clothing that I look at them through. Virginia Woolf is about thinking through clothes because of all the thinking she did in her writing about clothing. And once you start looking, it's there all the time, using clothes to think. And then Vanessa Bell, she made her own clothes and she made her own clothes all her life. And Wolf often talks about her sister sitting there silently with a needle and thread. And this kind of silence, everything is said in the fact that she says nothing, but she sews. And as I was starting to research her, I, I was thinking like, oh, I've actually never made my own clothes. And if I'm gonna write about Vanessa Bell properly, I should, try making my own clothes even if it's a disaster and even I just write about oh my god I can't do it oh well let's keep shopping and so I got some material and I got a pattern and I borrowed my sister's sewing machine and then they sat upstairs in our flat for three months untouched and I put that chapter on hold and I moved on to Duncan Grant and I thought I'll come back to that in a few months and then after mum got sick and after we lost mum we had the funeral a few weeks later and my mum made clothes and she could sew and she made stuff for the home. My mum was also an artist. And I was like, oh, let's try making something. Let's give it a go. And so I started to make a garment and I followed the pattern until I didn't follow the pattern. And halfway through making it, I then diverted from the pattern and played with the pattern. And I loved it. And I made this t-shirt that was also had a frock coat tail on it because I love frock coats from my childhood my early years in London when Alexander McQueen was first making garments and McQueen used frock coats as a way to puncture societal norms or class and I was obsessed I was hooked straight away and I then just started making more and more clothes and and it became a way of grieving through making 
as I worked through grief, it then became a way of living through making and it just became a normal part of life. And I've been a fashion writer for 20 odd years and it completely has changed my relationship with clothing and it carried on, it carried on. And then as we were working on the book in terms of the edit and finishing it all off, my dad got sick and then my dad suddenly died. And so I was back in grieving and making again and the cycle has gone round another time and, and now I'm in living and making, grieving and making, living and making. I spent yesterday making the, on the weekend. The trousers I'm wearing right now I made, the top I'm wearing I made, the leg warmers I made. I'm utterly changed by doing the book, utterly. I had spent 20 years consuming as part of my fashion writing because consumption I thought was the key driver of fashion. And then it turns out it's not. And actually fashion and fashion industry are two very different things. And I can engage in fashion and not shop. A huge gust of wind. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to London. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very poignant note and idea that guides that methodology that you're speaking of. And it comes through very strongly in the book, but it's never beating the reader over the head. Mm. It's woven through there, so to speak, with honesty and delicacy. And I think that's the key strength of the book. It's not compromising at any point. It's being earnest in looking at these people and their lives, but also your own process and way of looking at these things. And I really loved the book and I really enjoyed our conversation as well, Charlie. Thank you, Nico. I, I really appreciated your thoughts too. Thank you for asking and thank you for, yeah, thank you for doing it. Bring No Clothes is available from November 28th by All Reading Stores and at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.